This is In Conversation from Network Reorient in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In this special episode, Uzma Jamil and Itraat Saeed are reflecting on the latest Islamophobic murders in Canada and what it means for the country's famed multiculturalism. Welcome to this uh, podcast conversation. Uh, today I'm here with Itrat Sayed, who is a PhD candidate at the School of Communications at Simon Fraser University in BC and also teaches gender studies at Langara College. Welcome, Itrat. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam. Thank you. So I want to begin just by mentioning the fact that earlier in June, there was a family, Muslim family in London, Ontario, who were uh, run down and four members of that family killed by a young man who is currently in jail and will be facing uh, potentially terrorism charges along with manslaughter charges. That event has been a horrible event that uh, has shocked very a lot of Canadians, a lot of Muslims, and has started a conversation again for many of us about what it means to be here, what it, Islamophobia means, how things are happening politically for Muslims here in Canada. So to sort of begin that conversation, um, Itrat, you published a piece on the Reorient blog last week. Could you maybe begin by telling us a little bit about what you were thinking? What were some of the key ideas and thoughts in your head? Well, I think that when I, during that week, I was watching the public discourse as I was, you know, like as we all were dealing with our own shock and our grief and our just processing all that's been happening, particularly since this happened just after weeks of all of us being torn up and upset about the, um, uh, the, what was happening in Palestine. And so it was this incredibly emotional time for all of us, but watching the public discourse play out, one of the things that I was struck with was that there were these two very public moments where the Muslim community took center stage uh, in the national public discourse in Canada and what that might mean um, in terms of, um, of how we can understand how that plays out in terms of the larger discourse on Islamophobia and the larger discourse around Muslims in Canada. Yeah, okay. So I think that's a really great starting point and a lot of different ways that conversation can go. Uh, maybe you want to begin by talking a little bit about what you saw happening on the national uh, broadcast of the vigil and the janaza. So the two things that I was really looking at in these two public moments was the ways in which the community uh, asserted itself with a, with a particularly religious identity that was not uh, that was not um, that was very much about the community's expression. Um, for the sake of the community itself. So what I mean by that is that there was not a lot of attempt uh, to make these uh, events translatable to the non-Muslim Canadian audience. They just were as they were. So they were there was something non-performative about them that I think for me made it very distinct. So for if we think about like the first, the vigil, um, the way that the community responded, and I mean, and and both of these events can be critiqued in many ways. And in my piece, I point out some of the the uh, critiques that have been circulating as as Muslims have been discussing. And one of them was that there was so much space given to uh, politicians. But I also want to say that that is true. But there was also a way that the community spoke back 
uh, that needs to be noted, like the way that they responded in varying different kinds of ways to the various politicians. Um, you know, and I like one of the things that nobody could have missed was the way that uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford was booed. And there was a real assertion of, of community's own, um, I, you know, ideas and the community's own political process in those spaces. But uh, beyond that, what was struck me the most probably was the, the way that the religious expression and the religious practice of Muslims uh, was just out there on the CBC or on all the networks uh, for uh, uh, unmediated, untranslated, a whole bunch of hours uh, of people reading from the Quran, of people uh, re uh, reading hadith, of people speaking even in their their uh, their um, speeches, speaking with a, an embeddedness in Islamic um, understandings and Islamic symbolism, and and particularly in the way that they articulated a relationship to grieving and death and mourning. That was not, it was not sort of what we normally expect from the community in that it wasn't designed for consumption by others. So I think that's actually, there are a lot of really important points in what you've said. So let me try to um, highlight some of them. I think the fact that these were not, these were live broadcasts and they were not scripted, um, I think has a lot to do with the, what you were talking about, the performativity and versus, versus the sort of taking up space unapologetically without explaining, without translating. So I think in some sense, so CBC didn't have a chance to have, you know, it wasn't the kind of event where CBC would have had somebody, you know, there to quote unquote translate what was happening or explain what was happening. But the fact that also that they didn't try to do that, right? So I think that about uh, Muslims, about taking up space, you know, as Muslims, sort of expressing their religious identity as part of normal um, normal life in the sense of normal community response to this, to these awful events. I think that's a really important point. And I think you're very, you're, it's very um, true. And this also really struck me at the time is I've never heard that um, never heard the Quran being read, never heard the Azan being given, just sort of as is on national television, just like just like that, you know. So, and you know, the contrast being that it would have been used in a story that sort of uh, highlights the Muslim religiosity as a problem of some kind, you know, as a harbinger of some kind of terrorism, you know, sort of story, that kind of thing. So, I think that is actually a really important point that I think is very, um, it's unprecedented. You know, but, and having said that, not to say that it's everything. So it's not to say that we have arrived, quote unquote, um, but simply that this is an important moment uh, if we're thinking right. about Muslim religiosity, Muslim um, taking a public space. Uh, so, so I in think my that's... article, in my article, I think I refer to it as moments of rupture. Yeah. So there is these just to see it as moments where the the general discourse of Islamophobia isn't isn't. Uh, altered entirely it isn't shifted it isn't destroyed but there are these moments where it comes apart yes absolutely i think that's really that's a nice way of um, putting it within the bigger picture the other point that you made about the community um speaking back to politicians i think that's just a really nice um way of framing it because it also struck me the spontaneous response to the to the politicians right who came up um, and a spontaneous response to the things that the speaker said, thinking particularly about the Palestine issue with the speaker who mentioned that at the very end. Yes. Um, 
Can you can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I think that says something about the issues that are important to Muslims in the public uh, and political sphere versus what are what is important to politicians. Right. But I think the other layer of this is the way that the Muslim community, the mediator between the Muslim community and Canadian public discourse are often these problematic community leaders mm-hmm. who package and present the community in ways that um, may not always be fully representational. Um, mm-hmm. And that's probably a whole other conversation about the problematics of representation within um, Muslim community leadership. Just let's just take that as, as we know it to be true. So, um, but, but what I found was interesting is that this wasn't a chance even for that layer of, of, of to uh, manipulate or to misrepresent, um, that people just spoke and, and like, you know, audibly made their presence heard. So at the end, uh, what, I think it was Munir al-Qasim, who made a very brief point about the connection between what has happened here in London, Ontario, and what has been happening um, in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an immediate roar from the crowd mm-hmm. that uh, was, uh, you could not have missed it by any way. And it was just on there. on, And it was this really... Uh, um, moment where the community's actual perception of 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 politics and of their their connect connectivity to the global um, uh, political reality of the world uh, was just made very uh, obvious in a way that it had not previously been, and in a way that I think Muslim community leadership often like to uh, to um, dismiss or or to um, often. Um, minimize, I would say. Yeah. So the fact that the political space as it currently exists doesn't um, allow for that connection to be made as the basis for political action, like on the part of the Muslim communities, right? So I think it also has to do with the the receiving environment, so to speak, um, as well in, as in terms of what what is or is not possible politically. I think, but I think this leads us into sort of thinking about um, two sort of uh, you know, dichotomies or maybe tensions, uh, thinking about Muslim presence uh, in public space versus Muslim erasure within public space, I think, so which is what sort of what the basis of Islamophobia is about. And I think the other part is around Muslim agency. So, you know, talking in this phrase about speaking back to politicians um, as a form, uh, as just not only simply a response, but also as maybe a form of resistance as well, is is a marker um, of Muslim agency. Do you have Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, I think all of that. One of the things that's that's crucial that we were talking about earlier about the ways in which Islamophobia um, is often focused upon erasing what is visible, what is non normatively visible. So it, the focus is often uh, Muslim women who wear headscarves um, or uh, the or Muslims who take up any kind of sort of public space in ways that um, that are distinctive, and they often become the the, the target of, of of Islamophobia, both in the sense of like uh, the 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 daily uh, interpersonal Islamophobia, but also the target of policy and legislation. So, the idea of wanting to um, to, that Muslims are acceptable as long as they uh, 
uh, remove themselves of distinctive identifiers as long as they uh, become sort of a meld into uh, uh, the the larger community. Um, that's acceptable. But the way when Muslims stand out, when they take up space and, you know, we can see that. I mean, it's definitely a shifting thing, but we can see how that functions. So the erasure of Muslim identity becomes one of the key ways in which Islamophobia mobilizes around or the key points around which Islamophobia mobilizes. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the, the, the assertion of Muslim religious identity as a, as a, as a, as a, as an agentic, uh, living, thriving community that has a political will of its own and, and its own sort of process is, is something that disrupts for a moment that narrative. Absolutely. So this is, um, I, I, have, I have two thoughts on this. One is, of course, Quebec. I mean, Bill 21. There's, there's so much um, conversation, so much happening about that in terms of Muslim religiosity versus uh, you know, secularism versus public space versus national space. So I, I want to draw that out um, a little bit here. So I think, and then I want to actually also think about the the tension that's all the juxtaposition between Quebec's idea of secularism versus Canadian ideas of multiculturalism and why these two frameworks are often put um, as, as oppositional in some sense. So the first point, uh, and in terms of Muslims taking a public space and, and visibly taking a public space. So I think that is a really good point. I think it ties in um, with this idea that legislating, so there's removal of Muslims from public space, which is what kind of what anyone is trying to do in, in terms of through legislation. Bill 21, for, for those of you who don't know, um, is legislation in Quebec that makes the giving and the receiving of public services by people who wear uh, visible um, religious symbols uh, prohibited. So visible religious symbols in, in our case here is referring to Muslim women who wear hijabs and niqabs, but it also includes other religious minorities as well. Um, this bill has passed this law. It is is under a process of challenge legally, which has had um, has a variable uh, trajectory. Anyway, I won't go into that too much right now. But I think this idea, I want to talk about the assumptions that actually underlie the, underlie the law and why that is, um, how that relates to what you're talking about. So I think the sense that Muslims need to be removed from public space as an expression of Quebec's idea of secularism is really the motivating logic behind it. But I think also the fact that this kind of violence um, that we see in, in London, Ontario, 2017 in the Quebec City um, mosque shooting. These are rather horrific extensions of the same idea. Um, And I think the fact that politicians are very quick to say that there is no connection between these type of, you know, horrific violent events and the removal of uh, Islamophobia on sort of on an everyday level and institutionalization of that Islamophobia on an everyday level. I think that is, um, well, obviously it's problematic, but I think it's a thing that we need to actually pay attention to, this sort of juxtaposition between the normalization of Islamophobia on an everyday level and the ways in which you're talking about moments of rupture that kind of bring this into into public view and make you know headline news and that kind of thing. Yeah, so there's just so much that you've just said there, like so many um, layers to it. But one of the things is that the denial of the connection between um, 
Bill C twenty, uh, sorry, Bill twenty one in Quebec, and uh, Islamophobia, is really connected to the inability to understand how structural racism functions, and mm-hmm. uh, and also the existence of structural racism as the uh, premier of Quebec. Uh, continues to assert that there is no systemic uh, racism in Quebec, Mm -hmm. which always, you know, I find particularly uh, appalling, but also hilarious. Um, But so we have to sort of see the way that these things uh, function together and that uh, the ability, like the shift that we've seen in, in discourse around racism and oppression in the last year and a half or so is part of it is about the assertion of naming the problem, right? So naming anti-Black racism, naming uh, colonial genocide, uh, naming anti-Indigenous racism, naming Islamophobia, that mm-hmm. actually naming these things has a particular power as it creates space, a discursive space for us to actually begin and again, obviously, discourse isn't everything, but discourse is also a lot. It does create space that we can then engage in in policy conversations and 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 discuss legislation, um, dis- discuss actual uh, practical material shifts that we can make. Um, but discourse allows creates a space for us to have those conversations. Absolutely. So, what would you um, what do you think about the discourse around Canadian multiculturalism and how Muslims do or do not fit into it? So, the big part of it is that I think both kinds of secu- like so multiculturalism, even Anglo multiculturalism, or you know, that we sort of see in 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 the, in Canada outside of Quebec and in England, you know, that type of multiculturalism also has it's also bound up in a certain kind of secularism i i don't think it's it's completely separate because it's bound up in a con- particular construction of modernity and modernity is wrapped up around secularism mm-hmm. however the laicite in quebec and which uh you know in france has a particular has a particular history and a particular trajectory and and that uh secularism uh really is bound up in the erasure of religious expression of any kind, but it really is not any kind. It targets particularly non, non-Catholic non religious expression in Quebec. Mm-hmm. And one of the things to think about that, I, as we're having this conversation, I keep thinking about this really old article by Nilfer Goulet when she's talking about Turkey, um, uh, uh, Kemalist Turkey, and one of the things she's she talks about is that it's not about headscarves on grandmothers. Mm-hmm. It's about headscarves in the parliament. It's about headscarves in public spaces marked with as sites of modernity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, really the issue. It's not so much that um, Muslim women in Quebec wear headscarves or wear face veils. Some Muslim women in Quebec wear headscarves or face veils, but it's that they they do so with an assertion of equality. Mm-hmm. Because it's that assertion of equality that goes to the core of the uh, of the assumption of the superiority of the of modernity, the superior superiority of a Western uh, um, modernity. So if 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 Muslim women want uh, to be seen as equals in in at the university, in Parliament, in in very public spaces, in public spaces of power. Mm-hmm. That's where the issue. Uh, that's where that's where Islamophobia uh, comes into play, and where where it demands the erasure 
of religious identity. Absolutely. But I think what it does is actually, in a is the you know what Salman Sayyid talks about the problem of Muslims as citizens in Western nations. So the problematization of Muslims is actually it's based on this kind of um, racialized hierarchy, right? Like that it's only possible because there is this um, what you're calling the notion of modernity, which is intrinsically tied with how Western uh, nationhood or, or the Western nation is conceptualized, and then in which, as a result of which, then Muslims are placed in particular ways in relation to that Western, modern Western nation, right? Right. And I think this really gets to a point where we, I'm hearing so much uh, in the discourse where, like, Islamophobia started, like, at, at this date in the you know, after 9-11, no, like that's part of the conversation that, that even in our own communities and um, like we have to have a longer memory than this Mm -hmm. and to understand the, the long sweeping historical narrative of how Islamophobia is tied into Orientalism is, is tied into uh, imperialism and, and the structures of, of of the logics of empire, the racial logics of empire. Absolutely. I think actually this is a really interesting point of where do we begin, like what is the beginning of the story of Islamophobia in the country that, you know, you're speaking about? And I think in some sense, and I'm going to call this the national imaginary, mm-hmm. um, but national imaginary as conceptualized by Muslims, right, as opposed to groups here. So yeah. I think this is really interesting, this preoccupation of dating um, Islamophobia from a particular point in history, what does it help us do to be able to date the beginning, you know, to, to date a beginning of our um, collective presence as, as a political group within, within the nation? And by we, I mean, I'm talking about Muslims. But I think what you're talking about, so that's one question. And I think the second point is actually uh, what you're saying is it's not so much about the, the point like the date or the point and 9-11 I know is a marker in, in a lot of a lot of different kinds of national imaginaries um, but it's about the logics that make that possible and what you're pointing to is actually how the logic and reality are intrinsic to the way the nation is imagined and therefore it doesn't have to be that simply um, Muslims have experienced this that the other thing from a certain point in time but that there's a long history starting with in in the case of Canada and in Quebec of sort of white settler colonialism that has this own relationship and its own logics of whiteness which constitute that kind of um, violence I guess in in its very assumptions. Right and I think this is a conversation that we have to have much more in our communities because the Muslim community even though has longer historical precedents, we conceptually sort of understand it emerging in, in some kind of numbers with the Canadian waves of, of immigration in the late 60s, uh, early 1970s. Mm-hmm. That sort of, that's, we sort of, uh, whether or not we, um, we do, we, like we, in our narrative, that's our beginning point of how we think of Muslims in Canada. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to understand that we emerge in this longer narrative as settlers in a colonial uh, uh, enterprise within at some point in an ongoing narrative that precedes us mm-hmm. and doesn't begin with us. And, and we, we are, we, we come into it and then we're absorbed into it and, and engage with it at a particular moment in history. But that 
racist colonial project has uh, has a long history before us, and we need to understand how our role is in that in that story. But also Canada as a whole, even the colonial establishment of Canada on these unceded stolen lands has to be understood as an extension of the product of the of the conceptualization of Europe, of the West mm-hmm. as a whole. Mm-hmm. And that so the, the story is, is it's a long story mm-hmm. and it's a political decision to begin it at some place uh, as 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 people would say, secondly. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to understanding who we are in this longer project. Absolutely. I think the other thing is that when we think about, and I agree with you that you know Muslims in Canada sort of date the beginning of their story with post-World War II arrivals of starting from the 60s. And there's more research done now that sort of um, does more uh, historical work and thinking about the first, what they were called at that time, perhaps Syrian uh, arrivals or, or uh, from the Ottoman, then Ottoman Empire. Um, so that it actually kind of sets, puts the story back by about, you know, whatever, 60, 70 years. But in fact, the story itself does not begin at that moment. So I think thinking about Muslims as immigrants or even Muslims as um, arrivals into a nation that is already settled, quote unquote, is a different kind of story than thinking of than a story in which Muslims act as um, colonial and post-colonial subjects. I think that's kind of where your the distinction that you're making, I think, is is that kind of distinction, right? Right. And also the broader inclusion that the story of Muslims, if we want to think about, I mean, and we don't think about this in terms of Canada per se, we often think of this as part of the story of Muslims in the US, mm-hmm. but Muslims being brought to these lands as enslaved peoples. Right. And that the story and, and that that being part of our collective history that we need to map in terms of um, of how we came to be as a community on these like on Turtle Island, if we think of it as a whole. Right. It actually changes up the entire. So this phrase of Muslims in the West, which is like a category of study, the way books are categorized, that kind of thing. Muslims in the West, if we actually were to take that seriously, that would actually be a, a colonial story and it would even predate colonialism in the sense of what you're saying. If we're talking about the bringing of enslaved um, Muslims to the Americas, Muslims in the West, in some sense, begins with that arrival mm-hmm. um, rather than this 1960, you know, 1960s arrival. Yeah. And I, I mean, and there's particular dynamics around. And so then the story of the, the Muslims in, within our community, we talk about like belonging right? Which is one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot. Like how do we assert belonging? How do we understand belonging has to be within a context where we understand ourselves, um, you know, coming into this story that predates us, that has a particular, uh, you know, and, and we're, we're having this conversation on June 24th -hmm. within the context of nearly daily, uh, I'm not, I don't, I hate the word discovery because I don't believe they're discovery, but that daily announcements of unmarked graves at residential schools across mm-hmm. this uh, mm-hmm. country. So it's Im- important for us to sort of see, like, what are we seeking belonging to? Like, what does multiculturalism, the discourse, the dominant discourse of multiculturalism, even outside of Quebec, what does it ask of us? 
Mm-hmm. What does it require of us? And what are we seeking when we seek recognition within that discourse? What is it that we're seeking recognition as? Absolutely. So I, I want to actually draw out the connection to the um, Indigenous uh, residential schools and the announcements of, like you're saying, very. it's a very important point, the announcements. And discovery is a loaded word, and these are not discoveries in that sense, um, about about these unmarked graves. So just a week before um, the London attacks, we there was news about uh, about 215 children who were discovered in unmarked grave graves at a residential school in Kamloops. Um, and then just today, uh, when the news of Saskatchewan um, First Nations communities said there were, um, I don't know how many now, but number of unmarked graves that were found, and that's a loaded word, I, again, to say in the settler context, but that were announced uh, today. So what does that mean in terms of the relationship between Muslim communities um, and Indigenous communities living within this, this white settler society context? Right. And I think part of it is we're not willing to have a larger conversation. I mean, not that we're not willing, that we have, I, I, actually, I want to say that we've begun. There are there, there is the beginning of that conversation within Muslim communities, but we need a, a much broader conversation mm-hmm. about understanding ourselves, even as, uh, you know, f- uh, people fleeing colonialism and empire around the world and the ravages of that and being racialized within this within Canada, mm-hmm. e- even though that all of that is true, mm-hmm. it is also true that we are a community of settlers, for the mm-hmm. most part. Those of us who are not also Indigenous mm-hmm. are a community of settlers. So, and that is a very different framework to understand than the immigrant framework, which is the dominant way in which uh, the Muslim community is... Uh, you know, researched academically, but also the way, the the dominant way that the Muslim community um, speaks of itself, tells its own story. Absolutely. And I think this is an important point also in terms of the study of Muslims, right? So that Muslims um, are studied as immigrants and in some sense that they're always, um, they're always late arrivals, you know, (laughs) quote unquote, so within a, within a settler society context, and which then allows for certain kinds of conversations to happen, right? So there, it's about conversations about integration or the lack thereof, or and that's where this this preoccupation of um, you know secularizing Muslims, quote unquote, making them less visible in their religiosity in public space and all that kind of thing. That's where that conversation comes from. Um, there's also, I think, this idea that if Muslims are always from somewhere else then um, they, their claim to national belonging is always contingent, uh, in fact, upon the nation itself. And therefore, it changes the ways in which um, Muslims not only relate to the nation and the state, so making that distinction, I think, in terms of institutionalization of laws and things like that, but I think also how Muslims relate to other communities as well, other racialized communities, but also indigenous communities and the political claims that each group can then make um, to the state on the basis of their position. Yeah. And I think within that discourse of, of is also the discourse of the model minority and the respectability mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. So if you are an immigrant community, then the way that the narrative plays out you have to, uh, you know, you have to uh, establish yourselves and like all that, all of that narrative of, of hard work and education and accomplishment and meeting uh, middle class classist 
uh, mm-hmm. uh, markers of acceptability. Mm-hmm. So that's a, and that's a big part of how Muslims want they they uh, the Muslim community often articulates itself within that framework. Absolutely, but I think also because then they um, social mobility, social and economic mobility uh, is then the basis for making a political claim, which completely then leaves out working class mm-hmm. uh, Muslims, of which there are many, um, who are also predominantly racialized communities, who are not somehow seen as the Muslim community in the same way as what you're saying, the middle class, upwardly, you know, socially mobile, et cetera, et cetera. Muslim immigrants who have, quote unquote, arrived um, are seen as well. Right. And like the success story of the immigrant success story, the one highlighted and and utilized like like uh i would want to say even deployed mm-hmm. as as by in the national discourse as markers of the success of multiculturalism absolutely there there's a particular way that that story plays out and there's an invitation like a hailing of of muslims to like fit themselves within that narrative absolutely i think that but i think it also ties in with this good bad you know moral categories that are used to make Muslims intelligible to the rest of the nation, you know? So, you know, for the 9-11, post-9-11, war on terror discourse, all of that framed Muslims as bad Muslims, quote-unquote, because they were allegedly, you know, terrorists, radical, radicalized individuals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the, they were, in some sense, they were, um, you know, fundamentally then at, at odds with uh, or in, op- in opposition to, in some sense, the quote-unquote national security of the state. Whereas I think, the, and then, which then allows, if you have a bad Muslim, then it allows for a, the good Muslim, right? The one who engages in this kind of respectability politics and who's the good immigrant and, you know, who does great things and who represents their community in positive ways, et cetera, et cetera. Which also then, I mean, both of these categories are limiting in their own ways, right? And they actually facilitate Canadian multiculturalism um, as the framework for talking about talking about Muslims. Right. And Muslims never are going to fit into that discourse in, in, in the way that the discourse was designed. Muslims have never been able to fit into that because we are, we are not a primarily cultural community and we are not ethnically, uh, we're heterogeneous and we are linguistically diverse. And there is, we don't fit those, those simple categories of that multiculturalism policy and, uh, frameworks were designed to uh, to uh, absorb. Yeah, so I like I, I want to maybe talk a little bit more about what I think you're sort of gesturing towards is is the performance mm-hmm. of an identity um, within within uh, public space and sort of you know predetermined or pre acceptable ways and the ways in which Muslims actually don't fit into that kind of um, framework. But I also want to talk a little bit more about performativity of responses. So going back to the vigil and, and the janaza and the responses of politicians to, to what happened, I think there's a performativity of those politicians' responses because it's what they're expected to do, you know, sympathy and support. It's not to say that, you know, it may not be genuine it it might well be genuine as well but it's simply that there is a performance that is required in that political moment 
but how does that tie in with the performativity, I would say, of, um, of I guess, dealing with Islamophobia on one hand, but I think for also how Muslims also present themselves in political and public spaces in, in a bigger way. So I guess thinking about the bigger picture here and thinking about the ways in which there, these things are both, uh, performances are both visible, but then there's sort of an everyday invisible um, do you have any thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah. So one of the things I was thinking about is that if we think about the day after, two days after the vigil, um, mm-hmm. I forget the name, but someone wanted to pass a condemnation motion in the Ontario uh, uh, Provincial Parliament. Um, mm-hmm. And it was uh, the Doug Ford's government blocked it, which was like something like 36 or 48 hours after standing in front of a mosque talking about Islamophobia. Right. So the thing is, like, I, this is what I think is is... Like, I think in that moment, like, is he sorry that this family died? Yes, of course. I'm not saying he's like a monster, but the complete disconnect between understanding uh, that this act of violence is the expected result of a, of a, of a larger discourse of, of, of specific policies, of specific uh, legislation, like, that's the disconnect. Like you can actually, you can be sorry that these people died. You can be sorry that, that Muslim women, um, uh, are being attacked, uh, you know, and just two hours before we were having this conversation, I heard of another attack in Alberta. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, we can see these, uh, we, we can sort of see like there's this emotional response, a human emotional response, which I'm not going to say is illegitimate, but it is not understanding the 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 implication of policy absolutely i think a lot of the things that i've read that have been written since um these attacks early in june actually are about holding uh, politicians accountable precisely for that connection and Mm -hmm. between this particular awful event and everything else that's been happening which which is based on actions and policies that they've been doing so it's not like it was an you know out of the blue kind of a thing and i think there is subs a i think so there's two things happening here one is the accountability that's being asked for um of politicians by sort of individual muslims but i think also by muslim groups uh who are who are involved in civil society aspect of it but i think on the other side of it there is a tremendous investment in that disconnect. So, you know, there is, there is a tremendous amount of investment in actually not seeing the systemic and um, how policies and laws and these sorts of things feed social attitudes are fed by social attitudes, which makes certain things legitimate and normalized um, versus, you know, an individual attack. Oh, that was awful. They were killed. We're very sorry. And, it was just an individual thing and it happened and life goes on. Yeah. And I, and, and I think it's up to the community to constantly and our allies to constantly make that connection. But we're, I think we're building on a, a lot of work that has a lot of shift, discursive shift that has happened in the last uh, couple years, particularly uh, I feel we are indebted to the successes of the black lives matter movement Mm-hmm. that has tried to make the connections between uh, violence and uh, and racism and systemic uh, or economic and policy arrangements in society. 
that we're trying that we're building on that conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think actually the fact that so this is maybe going a little bit off topic, but all of this drama around CRT in the US, um, you know, critical yeah. theory as sort of, a, you know, this alleged rewriting of history that, you know, is is a threat to various views, you know, dominant views of of national history and all of that. I think that actually is an example of the kind of public accountability that's being asked for by the people, like by racialized people and by black people in, in you know, in the U.S. specifically, but by racialized communities all over to say that actually we see this, we have always seen this because our communities have been, you know, bearing the brunt of the violence of this. Um, and now we're going to hold you accountable for this through, you know, as a political claim. So it's not simply just, a, you know, um, a one-off uh, kind of event, which I think it is in the interest of a lot of um, governments to make it seem as if it's a one-off event. Um, mm -hmm. But that this is simply, a, this is a political claim and it's the basis of political mobilization that only, that includes multiple communities and not simply just that one community. That I think is actually, like you're saying, that is a new, not new altogether, but a newer um, shift that uh, that I'm also that I'm also seeing happening here in Canada as well as in other places. Right, and and then there's the pushback that we're seeing yes. uh, against that. But I I feel like there's a whole other conversation that would be really interesting to have, and I'm and I'm sure someone's going to write about this. But a few years ago, the whole uh, the banning of Sharia law. Mm -hmm. in the states like all of these these like states banning sharia lot without knowing what that means or what that would even look like or what that what even is sharia like all that whole yeah. that we have to sort of see the link between that and the current mm -hmm. thing that's happening right now about uh, critical race theory right. right and there is i think a through line between that and that is the the pushback of of white supremacy the the pushback against uh, any kind of demands or uh, mobilization or, or this, the, 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 the successes of any kind of movement for, uh, for justice it brings this sort of uh, uh, this resistance or this, this like, you know, backlash from the, the way white supremacy articulates itself. No, absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, if we're going to be, um, transnational about this the I think probably since uh, I want to say 2016 2017 ish so you know I'm thinking about the election of Trump I'm thinking about the beginning of Brexit which finally you know took I don't know how many years to actually finish but the beginning of it um, and then you know the the election of far right leaning um, white nationalist leaning uh, politicians and, and parties in, in different countries in Europe and also, you know, their greater visibility here in, in Quebec and in Canada in terms of, you know, protests and demonstrations. I think all of that, like, sort of is just a way of making um, white supremacy visible in a, in a public way um, as a resistance, like you're saying, I agree with you, that I think it's a form of resistance to political claims by racialized groups but I think it's also, um, it might just be a thing in its own way. So not simply just a resistance to, but also an assertion of. Does absolutely. that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I, and, and I think those things are very much connected because it's the, it's the, any challenge to the centrality of white supremacy, which is by definition, white supremacy, I guess, uh, is, is going to, is, it brings on like a, a pushback of, of de- trying to defend that space. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I want to actually bring this conversation back, I think, to Canada and Islamophobia, which is where we started, um, and thinking more about the sort of things that, you know, shifts and things that have happened over time that I think are different. So I think one, you know, these London attacks reminded everyone uh, here, as, but in particularly in Quebec, of what happened with the mosque shooting in 2017. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is that how much this feels like a, um, an echo, sort of a repetition of what happened then. You know, the, like there's this awful tragedy, and then we get this sort of you know short-lived empathy and sympathy and support, and then it kind of you know dies away, and then nothing ever happens again. But at the same time, you know, it's you could say that Islamophobia is worse. You know, thinking about Bill Twenty One in Quebec in particular. But on the other hand, I would also say that. Um, Islamophobia as a public policy issue is also a lot more visible um, on on the radar in general. Whereas before, I think that was not really the case. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I really I, I agree with that completely. But I'm so um, I'm so cynical mm-hmm. that it's hard for me to. Um, so what I'm thinking as you were talking, I was thinking of this other moment of rupture mm-hmm. after uh, the Quebec. Uh, uh, shootings uh, in the in Quebec City Mosque. There was this press conference I remember watching with the leaders of the mosque uh, mm-hmm. and uh, f- uh, Quebec politicians. And uh, the press conference, the one that I saw, I'm sure there were many in French, but the one that I saw was in English. And the one of the leaders of the mosque was struggling to find the English word, and so mm-hmm. he turned to uh, the. To, to the premier and said and asked him in French, how do you say this word in English? Mm-hmm. And I, and there was something really uh, interesting about that moment because it was, and then the guy, and then he turned back and he said, I'm, I'm sorry, in Quebec, we speak French. Mm-hmm. The, said the leader of the Muslim community, this is how I'm remembering this for, from four years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. But I remember seeing in that moment, there was this complete, they, they, this complete at one point embeddedness in Quebec in, in the in in what what Quebec demands of its mm-hmm. people, right? Mm-hmm. What Quebec demands of the Quebecers, right? Which mm-hmm. is a complete commitment to the French language, mm-hmm. and so this these were people who were less functional in English mm-hmm. um, than than the the Quebec national politicians, um, and yet. And there was a, this moment of like sort of solidarity and there was this, as they stood shoulder to shoulder together. And then shortly after, the politics as usual in Quebec picked right up mm-hmm. and uh, Bill 21 was passed and a, and a constant assertion. And even before that, I think the first sort of uh, thing was when that same mosque asked for uh, uh, to establish a, a, a burial system, a burial ground. Uh, they were denied that. Yeah. So there is, there is like, I'm hopeful, like I see these moments of rupture. I see the way that Islamophobia becomes named. I see the way that it's like, that, that I feel like the discourse is shifting. We see very particular images 
um, you know, uh, that that uh, that assert the possibilities of the of the opening up of a space of Muslim identity, of the ways it's possible to be Muslim in Canada, in uh, as a, as a as a religiously practicing uh, Muslim person. Like I see those spaces open up, but I'm it's very hard for me to believe that they're going to translate into policy, or that there'll be a real shift, or that it won't even get worse. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I I'm agree with you. And I, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just too old for this. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't dismiss it um, as simply a function of age. I think it is simply that we have seen this cycle yeah. um, recently enough that it doesn't lend itself to much hope. Yeah, um, I, but I want to say two things. One, I guess my first question was, did the premier tell him what the word was in English? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, because yeah. I think if if he might have refused, that would have been an entire like separate thing. But right. I think um, so. I think two things. One, the commitment, the performance of speaking French in public, is code for a whole bunch of other things that are required in the name of integration in Quebec. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, um, it's all of those things are um, tied together in the way that language and racialization and cultural identity and national identity are all kind of, you know, all kind of mixed together. So, I mean, that's in a whole different conversation. And, and so I'm just going to bracket that for now. All of this to say, I think simply that the performance of, um, th- th- there's a tension between how one is expected to perform even when one is being uh, a sympathetic, I don't know, a sympathetic Muslim in the case of this press conference, um, which I think is at odds with what you're pointing out is the fact that, you know, uh, the realities of everyday life for Muslims. So you, this thing that you're referring to about not getting um, a, a burial space in Quebec City so the issue being that there are um, Muslim burial spaces in and around Montreal, uh, but none near Quebec City. And so the issue at the time of the shootings was whether the people who died were going to be buried in Montreal or whether they would be um, sent back to their countries of origin based on, you know, depending on the wishes of the family. Um, and this there was a zoning issue where the mosque um, found some land that could be used for Muslim burial spaces near Quebec City, but there's a zoning issue and there's a, a referendum of sorts. And they, you know, the referendum was like, no, you can't change the zoning that would allow that to happen. I think that is very, very real and very true and so, so, so emblematic of the way that Muslims here in Quebec, in Canada, live their lives. So there's this constant stop and go kind of thing where for a moment you feel like, okay, something's, something is happening here. There, you know, um, Muslim lives actually matter. I mean, not to, <clears throat> not to make it too much of a parallel <laughs> between right. lives matter. Cause I don't think it is a parallel, but right. simply to say that Muslims are human beings, a and B more importantly, that they have equal rights as citizens to national space, to, you know, policies that meet their needs uh, as a community, that is, that is important. 
Um, but and you're right. But then there's things like where the premier says there's no Islamophobia, you know, in Quebec and there's no systemic racism in Quebec and no Bill 21 has nothing to do with what happened in London, you know, in London, Ontario. All these kinds of things actually also add up and they have a cumulative effect of making us um, cynical, like you're saying, uh, and perhaps a little bit pessimistic about what the what's going to happen in the future. So I. You know, I, w- I don't want to end on this depressing note. So um, last thoughts on what to do next, I guess, what to think about next. Where do we go from here? What, what do you think? So, I mean, I am. So, again, I'm I'm I contain a, a multitude of contradictions. So <laughs> I am totally cynical about so many things. But also I, I found in those uh, in those two public moments I found hope in that. I found that the the rupture that existed was powerful. Like mm-hmm. I talk about in the article that that night vigil, um, the Quranic, the extended Quranic recitation uh, in Arabic from the, the the vigil was used by the national broadcast. It's the CBC national broadcast to to close out the the hour, mm-hmm. and it was interspersed with images of, of, of people, uh, at the vigil and, and, um, and it was powerful. Mm-hmm. It was a powerful moment to hear the Quran as just play itself out mm-hmm. in that way. And, and we know, and, and I, I think you mentioned earlier that like, if you look at like the, where do we hear the event? Where do we hear the Quran? We hear it in like movies just before something horrible is about to happen. Right. It's used as a marker of of difference. It's used as a marker of exoticism or danger, and to and I and to hear those sounds and it was an incredibly beautiful recitation. To have that just be there, and then when you went to um, the the if you when you went to the global uh, website for that whole week, the the first video that played the automatic play video that they had was of the of was of the funeral and the Quran was playing. Mm-hmm. So every time we went to that website, the the first thing that happened was the Quran started playing, and mm-hmm. that that's not just my my browser; that's like everybody's browser. So there is these moments, and, and there was hope in that, and I felt like the community and like especially the young people in the community. Uh, who maybe don't have this, who didn't live through those horrible days after uh, 2001 where uh, where Muslims were were paraded uh, out into the media to uh, to constantly be apologetic. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they don't have that history. Maybe they don't have that that media history. Maybe they can write a different story. Like may, maybe their story and the space that they take will be different. Yes, I think actually that I think that is perhaps maybe the best that we can do, maybe in some sense, you know, and, and, and that, okay, that sounds very depressing <laughs> also. Um, but I'm just thinking about what seems normal, right? And the ways that what seems normal changes over time. So mm-hmm. like you're saying that there was a time before 9-11 where Muslims weren't even on the radar. We were not, we were not a group as, you know, of, as a political identity, we were not a group of people. Um, after 9-11 made Muslims visible in a, in a bad way, so to speak. Um, and we've been dealing with the fallout from that for about 20 odd years now. And now we have these sort of events, which are un- unprecedented in Canada, given that gun violence um, and, and this sort of uh, religiously motivated violence um, is not very common. So 
in some in a way of making sense of these events, making sense of our histories, making sense of our stories, um, maybe there is a different way to think about what normal means uh, yeah. for the next generations. Right. And I, I just want to say that I think prior to 9-11, Muslims were uh, a political entity in, in the media, like definitely through like um, I because I, I am 100 years old. So I do I do remember, uh, you know, the way I, I lived through, even though I was, I was young, but I lived through the way in which uh, Muslim political identity was uh, racialized and problematized after 1979. Okay. Um, after, uh, like, after the Iranian Revolution, like, throughout the 80s and the in the 90s, like, um, but not, uh, but I think that, and I mean, obviously, there's people who studied this and who can articulate this in uh, much better than what I'm doing right now. But like, I feel like just from my perspective, there was a shift in that. Uh, at that time, Muslims in Canada were often, in the, at least in media discourse, seen as like, as as uh, as as outsiders representing other places, but here, mm. uh, like sort of sort of the foreigners uh, in in our midst. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the, the idea of a of a Muslim Canadianness uh, in all of the problematics that that is um, is is what we're seeing now. Yes, I think that's a good point, actually, in terms of what is the nation through which Muslims come into being as, as a political identity. And I, I, that's a good point in the sense that they were seen as um, from outside of Canada or, quote unquote, importing, you know, is the word, <laughs> importing right. their diasporic conflicts. Right. I'm putting that in quotes. Yeah. Um, into Canada as opposed to being defined by whatever the national story is of Canada. So I guess on that note, uh, I want to say thank you for your time. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I, so did I. It was lovely to, to think through some of these issues with you. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us. And uh, goodbye. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.